Chapter Six of Flower of the North. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Flower of the North by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Six. Scarce had he spoken when he would have given much to have recalled his words, wrung from his lips by that sobbing note of loneliness, of defiance, of half pain in the girl's voice. It was the same note, the same spirit crying out against his world that he had listened to in the moaning of the surf as it labored to carry away the dead, and in the wind that sighed in the spruce tops below the mountain. Only now it was the spirit speaking through a human voice. Every fiber in his body vibrated in response to it, and he stood with bared head, filled with a wild desire to make these people understand and yet startled at the effect which his appearance had produced. The girl faced him, her eyes shining with sudden fear. Quicker than her own was the movement of the half-breed. In a flash he was upon his feet, his dark face tense with action, his right hand gripping at something in his belt as he bent toward the figure in the center of the rock. His posture was that of an animal ready to spring, Close beside him gleamed the white fangs of the wolf-dog. The girl leaned over and twisted her fingers in the tawny hair that bristled on the dog's neck. Philip heard her speak, but she did not move her eyes from his face. It was the tableau of a moment, tense, breathless. The only thing that moved was the shimmer of steel. Philip caught the gleam of it under the half-breed's hand. "'Don't do that, monsieur,' he said, pointing at the other's belt. "'I am sorry that I disturbed you. Sometimes I come up here, alone, to smoke my pipe and listen to the sea down there. I heard you say that you hate Churchill, and I hate it. That's why I spoke.' He turned to the girl. "'I am sorry. I beg your pardon.' He looked at her with new wonderment. She had tossed back her loose hair and stood tall and straight in the moonlight, her dark eyes gazing at him now calmly and without affright. She was dressed in rich yellow buckskin, as soft as chamois. Her throat was bare. A deep collar of lace fell over her shoulders. One hand, raised to her breast, revealed a wide gauntlet cuff of red or purple plush, of a fashion two centuries old. Her lips were parted, and he saw the faintest gleam of her white teeth, the quick rising and falling of her bosom. He had spoken directly to her, yet she gave no sign of having heard him. "'You startled us, that is all, monsieur,' said Pierre quietly. His English was excellent, and as he spoke he bowed low to Philip. "'It is I whom you must pardon, monsieur, for betraying so much caution.' Philip held out his hand. "'My name is Whitmore, Philip Whitmore,' he said. "'I'm staying at Churchill until the ship comes in, and—and and I hope you'll let me sit here on the rock.' For an instant Pierre's fingers gripped his hand, and he bowed low again like a courtier. Philip saw that he, too, wore the same big, old-fashioned cuffs, and that it was not a knife that hung at his belt, but a short rapier. "'And I am Pierre, Pierre Couchet,' he said. "'And this is my sister, Jeanne.' 
We do not belong to Fort Churchill, but come from Fort God. Good night, monsieur. The girl had taken a step back, and now she swept him a curtsy so low that her fallen hair streamed over her shoulders. She spoke no word, but passed quickly with Pierre up the rock, and while Philip stood stunned and speechless, they disappeared swiftly into the white gloom of the night. Mutely he gazed after them. For a long time he stood staring beyond the rocks, marveling at the strangeness of this thing that had happened. An hour before he had stood with bared head over the ancient dead at Churchill. And now, on the rock, he had seen the resurrection of what he had dreamed those dead to be in life. He had never seen people like Pierre and Jeanne. Their strange dress, the rapier at Pierre's side, his courtly bow, the low, graceful curtsy that the girl had made him, all carried him back to the days of the old pictures that hung in the factor's room at Churchill, when high-blooded gallants came into the wilderness with their swords at their sides, wearing the favors of court ladies next to their hearts. Pierre, standing there on the rock, with his hand on his rapier, might have been Grosselier himself, the prince's favorite. And Jeanne... Something white on the rock near where the girl had been sitting caught Philip's eyes. In a moment he held in his fingers a small handkerchief and a broad ribbon of finely knit lace. In her haste to get away, she had forgotten these things. He was about to run to the crest of the cliff and call loudly for Pierre Couchet when he held the handkerchief and the lace close to his face and the delicate perfume of heliotrope stopped him. There was something familiar about it, something that held him wondering and mystified, until he knew that he had lost the opportunity to recall Pierre and his companion. He looked at the handkerchief more closely. It was a dainty fabric, so soft that it gave barely the sensation of touch when he crushed it in the palm of his hand. For a few moments he was puzzled to account for the filmy strip of lace. Then the truth came to him. Jeanne had used it to bind her hair. He laughed softly, joyously, as he wound the bit of fabric about his fingers and retraced his steps towards Churchill. Again and again he pressed the tiny handkerchief to his face, breathing of its sweetness, and the action suddenly stirred his memory to the solution of its mystery. It was this same sweetness that had come to him on the night that he had looked down into the beautiful face of Eileen Brokaw at the Brokaw Ball. He remembered now that Eileen Brokaw loved heliotrope, and that she always wore a purple heliotrope at her white throat or in the gold of her hair. For a moment it struck him as singular that so many things had happened this day to remind him of Brokaw's daughter. The thought hastened his steps. He was anxious to look at the picture again, to convince himself that he had been mistaken. Gregson was asleep when he re-entered the cabin. The light was burning low, and Philip turned up the wick. On the table was the picture as Gregson had left it. This time there was no doubt. He had drawn the face of Eileen Brokaw. In a spirit of jest he had written under it, The Wife of Lord Fitzhugh. 
In spite of their absurdity, the words affected Philip curiously. Was it possible that Miss Brokaw had reached Fort Churchill in some other way than by ship? And, if not, was it possible that, in this remote corner of the earth, there was another woman who resembled her so closely? Philip took a step toward Gregson, half determined to awaken him. And yet, on second thought, he knew that Gregson could not explain. Even if the artist had learned of his affair with Miss Brokaw, and had secured a picture of her in some way, he would not presume to go this far. He was convinced that Gregson had drawn the picture of a face that he had seen that day. Again he read the words at the bottom of the sketch, and once more he experienced their curious effect upon him, an effect which it was impossible for him to analyze even in his own mind. He replaced the picture upon the table and drew the handkerchief and bit of lace from his pocket. In the light of the lamp, he saw that both were as unusual as had been the picturesque dress of the girl and her companion. Even to his inexperienced eyes and touch, they gave evidence of a richness that puzzled him, of a fashion that he had never seen. They were of exquisite workmanship. The lace was of a delicate ivory color, faintly tinted with yellow. The handkerchief was in the shape of a heart, and in one corner of it, so finely wrought that he could barely make out the silken letters, was the word Camille. The scent of heliotrope rose more strongly in the closed room, and from the handkerchief Philip's eyes turned to the face of Eileen Brokaw looking at him from out of Gregson's sketch. It was a curious coincidence. He reached over and placed the picture face down, then he loaded his pipe and sat smoking, his vision traveling beyond the table, beyond the closed door, to the lonely black rock where he had come upon Jeanne and Pierre. Clouds of smoke rose about him, and he half-closed his eyes. He saw the girl again, as she stood there. He saw the moonlight shining in her hair, the dark, startled beauty of her eyes as she turned upon him, he heard again the low, sobbing note in her voice as she cried out her hatred against Churchill. He forgot Eileen Brokaw now, forgot in these moments all that he and Gregson had talked of that day. His schemes, his fears, his feverish eagerness to begin the fight against his enemies died away in thoughts of the beautiful girl who had come into his life this night. It seemed to him now that he had known her for a long time, that she had been a part of him always, and that it was her spirit that he had been groping and searching for and could never find. For the space of those few moments on the cliff, she had driven out the emptiness and the loneliness from his heart, and there filled him a wild desire to make her understand, to talk with her, to stand shoulder to shoulder with Pierre out there in the night, a comrade. Suddenly his fingers closed tightly over the handkerchief. He turned and looked steadily at Gregson. His friend was sleeping with his face to the wall. Would not Pierre return to the rock in search of these articles which his sister had left behind? The thought set his blood tingling. He would go back and wait for Pierre. 
But if Pierre did not return until tomorrow? He laughed softly to himself as he drew paper toward him and picked up the pencil which Gregson had used. For many minutes he wrote steadily. When he had done, he folded what he had written and tied it in the handkerchief. The strip of lace with which Jeanne had bound her hair he folded gently and placed in his breast pocket. There was a guilty flush in his face as he stole silently to the door. What would Gregson say if he knew that he, Phil Whitmore, the man whom he had once idealized as the fighter, and whom he believed to be proof against all love of woman, was doing this thing? He opened and closed the door softly. At least he would send his message to these strange people of the wilderness. They would know that he was not a part of that Churchill which they hated, that in his heart he had ceased to be a thing of its breed. He apologized again for his sudden appearance on the rock, but the apology was only an excuse for other things which he wrote, in which for a few brief moments he bared himself to those whom he knew would understand and asked that their acquaintance might be continued. He felt that there was something almost boyish in what he was doing, and yet as he hurried over the ridge and down into Churchill again, he was thrilled as no other adventure had ever thrilled him before. As he approached the cliff, he began to fear that the half-breed would not return for the things which Jeanne had left, or that he had already revisited the rock. The latter thought urged him on until he was half-running. The crest of the cliff was bare when he reached it. He looked at his watch. He had been gone an hour. Where the moonlight seemed to fall brightest, he dropped the handkerchief and then slipped back into the rocky trail that led to the edge of the bay. He had scarcely reached the strip of level beach that lay between him and Churchill when from far behind him there came the long howl of a dog. It was the wolf-dog. He knew it by the slow, dismal rising of the cry and the infinite sadness with which it slowly died away until lost in the whisperings of the forest and the gentle wash of the sea. Pierre was returning. He was coming back through the forest. Perhaps Jeanne would be with him. For the third time, Philip climbed back to the great moonlit rock at the top of the cliff. Eagerly he faced the north, whence the wailing cry of the wolf-dog had come. Then he turned to the spot where he had dropped the handkerchief, and his heart gave a sudden jump. There was nothing on the rock. The handkerchief was gone. End of chapter 6 Recording by Roger Moline